Thank you for standing for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. The text will be on the screen as I read. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is God's word. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we love that you speak to us, that you show us who you are, that you are not silent, and that you do not hide yourself, but in the gospel, in your word, you vividly show us your glory and your ways. So help that reality bless us right now as we lean into the preaching of your word that you so graciously have disclosed to us and the riches of your gospel in Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord. So be with us now through the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the books I was reading about this uh, verse in Jeremiah, the author mentioned something I haven't thought of for a long time, and he mentioned how this verse was his life verse. Now, if you're like me, I haven't thought about life verses for a very, very long time, so I need a refresher. What is a life verse? I remember hearing about this, and it's something that's popular in a certain kind of subculture of Western Christianity, but a life verse, if you're not familiar with it, is a verse or a small passage from Scripture that's not only your favorite verse, but something that's kind of your life motto. But like, this is something that I want uh, to really define my life and what I want to commit my life to and what God has for me. That's what a life verse is. I remember encountering uh, the idea of life verses when I was a camp counselor. I worked as a camp counselor during college uh, for about three summers straight. That first summer, I remember life verses being a big deal. And so people were asking me about life verses. And the summer before, I had a conversion experience. So really being on fire for the Lord was a new thing for me. And I hadn't really thought much about like if I were to pick a verse or a set of verses from scripture, like what would be like the one that would determine, you know, the, my life and the kind of like my life goals and that sort of thing. So uh, because I was immature and I'm still being sanctified from that, I would just say random verses, like nothing seriously. So I'd be like, well, my life verse is Exodus 23:19, which says, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And that's like my life verse, like that just really speaks to me, right? 
Or I'd give something even a little bit more crazy. It'd be like, well, my life verse is Deuteronomy 23.1, but then I wouldn't cite it. I'd say, you know, go back to your cabin, check it out. That's, that's one that really speaks to me, and I'm not going to cite it here either because it's one of those things like, is that really in the Bible, and can you say that in church? Uh, and just to like warn you, if you Google it, I'm just warning you, you might want to use a real Bible because you might have some crazy ads uh, if, you go, if you Google right now Deuteronomy 23.1. It's, it's a doozy. Uh, we did preach on that, by the way, uh, several years ago when we preached through the book of Deuteronomy. But as you, as you can tell, like I wasn't, I wasn't taking that seriously. And even to this day, I struggle with this idea of, of finding a life verse. Like I understand its intention, and I think it's good because like when you get up in the morning or when you spend time praying to the Lord, you want the Lord to speak to you, and you want the Lord to speak to you in such a way that's very specific and personal, and that's a good thing. So that's why maybe a better way to think about it is you have life verses or even daily verses or seasonal verses, right? That there's these portions of scripture and verses that really uh, feel like they're just directed towards you by the power of the Holy Spirit for that season or for that day or for that hour or for that minute. And I think that's a healthy instinct to have. So why would this be such a popular life verse for those that, that do that sort of thing? And I think it is because it's, uh, popular because it seems to be very optimistic. This verse, as it's commonly understood, says that God has a plan for each individual. For you, he has a plan for you, and that plan is that he's going to bless you. That's his plan. His plan to bless you is not to harm you, it's to prosper you, it's to give you a good life. And all you need to do, according to how this verse is understood as a life verse, is seek him with all your heart. And if you seek him with all your heart, then God will bless you with this specific plan to prosper you and not to harm you. And that's how the verse is commonly understood, uh, but also how it's taken out of context in a big way. Let's go ahead and look at this verse and these verses within the context of Jeremiah broadly and the letter to the exile that Jer Jeremiah writes in chapter 29 specifically. So let's, look, let's consider first, what is the broad theme and point in history that's happening in the book of Jeremiah? And I'm taking a lot of these notes from the Bible Project. It's a great uh, tool online and on YouTube that gives these overviews of books of the Bible. And they do a great one for the book of Jeremiah that puts chapter 29 within context of the rest of the book. Jeremiah is a, uh, is a prophet. And he served uh, God's people in the last decades in Judah before they are taken out into exile. And his message that he preached to God's people was about God's judgment on his people. And he pointed out all these things that, is, that was the reality behind God's judgment, that God's people were, were cheating on the Lord with their constant idolatry, that their political and religious leaders were corrupt, and that the culture included these mass injustices of neglecting the widows, the orphans, and the migrants. And that was the reality of what was going on. And because of all these awful things that weren't according to God's will, uh, God's judgment was going to come to God's people. So Jeremiah preached that God was going to allow another nation to be an instrument of his judgment on God's people. And it's this pagan nation that didn't worship the Lord later identified in the book of Jeremiah as Babylon. And that Babylon and that nation would one day destroy God's holy city of Jerusalem and carry many of its leaders and artists and, and uh, business owners off into exile and took them into a, another city that's not their own. 
And this judgment, Jeremiah makes clear, is not going to be pleasant. It's going to be very severe, and it's also going to be a very long time. You will be in exile for 70 years. But there's also hope in his message, that on the other side of these 70 years, there's going to be hope that God will continue to be faithful to his people and his promise. Now, imagine that's your calling in ministry. Maybe you're kicking the tires of that right now. You're like, maybe I should be in ministry. But that's what the Lord gives you. Okay, your calling into ministry is you're going to preach a message that's completely unpopular. You preach on judgment and that it's going to be severe and it's going to last a long, long time. Imagine that as attractional ministry, right? This was not a popular message. In fact, one of the ways in the book of Jeremiah that we know it was unpopular is because there were other prophets that were popular that were preaching a different message that would contradict what Jeremiah was preaching. Hananiah is one of those prophets who had a different message, and he preached that God's judgment was not going to be very severe and that it was only going to last a couple of years. And that message, as you can imagine, was much more popular than Jeremiah's message. But the problem is, as you know, is they both can't be right. Who had the real message from the Lord? And in this situation, Jeremiah was the one preaching a faithful and true message, while Hananiah was preaching a false message, even though it was a message that God's people wanted to hear, that they wanted to be true. And God punished this false prophet for it. And in chapter 28, right before the chapter we're looking at today, Jeremiah confronts this false prophet. It says, The prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah, the prophet, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you are going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. And in the seventh month of that year, this false prophet died. False prophets or false gospels are often popular it's because precisely it's what we want to hear. It's what we want to be true. It usually preaches something of convenience or ease or things are not going to be that bad. And that's popular because often maybe the real message, even though it's true, is much more harder to swallow. And that's what you have here. But I even think there's a small application point before we move to the letter in, the letter to the exiles in chapter 29. And that's this. When you are participating in, in gospel ministry, when you're going to church, when you're, you're, you're immersing yourself uh, in God's Word through Bible studies or sermons or daily devotionals, Sunday schools, whatever they are, campus ministries, there should be elements of that exposure over time where you are uncomfortable, where you hear things that uh, you wish weren't true, but because they're coming from God's Word, they are true, and they are the things that you need to hear. So if you ever participate in uh, ministry, make sure that ministry gets in your business in such a way that makes you uncomfortable, because if you're really preaching God's Word faithfully and pointing to the truth, not all of it's going to be pleasant. Some of it's going to wreck your soul, but only to transform and to restore you again. So in this context, Jeremiah was the prophet that was preaching a faithful and true message. God's people are going to face severe judgment from God and a severe punishment that was going to last 70 years. Many people are going to die when Babylon conquered Jerusalem and its leaders, skilled workers, artists are all carried off into exile and Jeremiah himself would experience and witness that exile. 
And so in, in chapter 29, that's the context. And Jeremiah is writing a letter to these exiles, to these people that have been carried off from their home city into a place that they did not choose to live in. And this is a letter that he writes to them to minister to them in that reality of being in exile. And it's a letter that points to the truth. It's a letter that's honest and hopeful. It's everything that you would want a letter to be in that moment. Because think about it. Like I, Yesterday, if you didn't know, I, I turned 40 years old. So I've, I've kind of caught up to, I've been feeling middle age for probably about 20 years the way it is. Uh, and, and so I've just kind of caught up to how I've been feeling for quite some time. So I, I turned 40 yesterday, and uh, I just was thinking about a letter like this. Like, what kind of letter would you write to yourself, like, just 20 years earlier? Knowing all the things that you know now, what you went through, the highs and the lows, the challenges, the suffering, the mountains and the valleys, the whole thing. And wouldn't it be just an awful thing to do to yourself, if you're 20 years younger, to just sugarcoat it? to just give the things and give the details of the things that you want to hear rather than things that are honest and true and hopeful that would actually prepare you for the next 20 years. And that's what Jeremiah does in this letter. It's a letter to these exiles to point them to the truth and what they need to do and how they need to live in light of the truth. So let's look at the letter in Jeremiah uh, 20. The context of the letter. So in Jeremiah, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. That's the first part of the letter. So the first point that Jeremiah is making is that he's, he's telling these people that all they're hearing from these false prophets is, no worries, this judgment isn't going to be that bad. It's not going to last that long, just a couple of years. And if you relocated a bunch of people into exile, and that's what they believed, a lot of the things that he's writing here, they wouldn't do. You wouldn't build a home in a place that you were only going to be in for a couple of years. You would find a temporary place to live. But he's saying, in a sense, you're going to be here for a long time. That's the reality. The people that are saying that you're going to be here for two years, they're lying. That's a false message. So this part of the letter is essentially saying, settle in. You're going to be here a while. Build some homes, plant some gardens because you're going to need that produce for a long time. In fact, find a spouse and start a family because you are going to see your grandkids brought up in this land. That's the reality of the letter. In Jeremiah 29, 7, it goes on to say, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, the city prospers, you too will prosper. This is a verse that I've often quoted, along with many other pastors, to cast a vision to bless the city that you're living in, to be a city-focused ministry where you are at in your city to live with God on his mission. And it's easy enough direction to understand because that's what the verse says. If you're living in this city, you might as well bless it. Seek the peace of your neighborhood. Seek the peace of your city. If the city is blessed, the logic goes, then you're going to be blessed because this is where you're living. So this is what you're going to do. If you're going to live here, love and serve your neighbors. Invest in this place. Serve this place. In fact, pray for your neighbors and love your neighbors. These are easy things to do and, and to understand and some things that you probably like to do while you live in the city. 
But it's especially easy to understand these commands if you love the place that you're in, if you love your neighbors. These are more difficult commands, these are more difficult verses to do if you do not love the place that you are in. But do these things still apply if you don't love the city that you live in? So again, remember this context. What's going on right now with this letter in the, in the book of Jeremiah? Why are God's people in exile in Babylon? Well, this is what they didn't do. They didn't go on Zillow, check out the home values, see the quality of life of Babylon, and said, man, that's a walkable city. I want to move there, right? That's not how they chose to move here. They didn't say, like, wow, the restaurant scene in Babylon is amazing. Look at the successful sports team. They beat the Vikings every year. And, man, the theater culture is just wonderful. You could go to a different concert, a different theater every weekend. I should relocate to Babylon. Now, many of us, that's how we choose where to live, but that's not what happened to these exiles. Why are they living in this city? They're in exile. This nation and this city, a part of this nation, declared war on their people, surrounded their most sacred city of Jerusalem, they destroyed it, and they carried off many of their people to a different city against their will. And in light of that context, the Lord says, you're going to be here a while, and don't just think, man, when I get back to Jerusalem, then I can seek the peace and prosperity of the city I love. No, you're going to do that right here right now, even though this city is a place you do not want to be in and is full of your enemies. It's very similar to what the, Jesus says to us as Christians in the Gospels where he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the reality of what's happening to these exiles. They don't want to be in this city, but nonetheless, the command is to seek the peace and prosperity of that city. The last part of uh, at least the first section of this letter says in Jeremiah 29, 8 through 9, this is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So finally, not surprising, the Lord reminds the exiles not to listen to the lies of religious leaders who are giving them a false message. Even doing so in God's name, even in the name of God, they're promoting lies and falsehoods, and they're simply again saying the things they want to hear rather than the things that are not true. And it's a good reminder to all of us that not everybody who preaches in the name of Jesus is saying honest and truthful things. So that's the context, and now we finally get into Jeremiah 29.10, uh, which includes verse 11, the main verse that's often taken out of context. So look at Jeremiah 29.10-14. through 14. These are the main verses to, to hone in on. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carry you into exile. So these verses do declare a commitment from God to his promises, which includes a commitment to bring the exiles back to their city and back to their land, 
to dwell. So there is hope for an amazing future and something to look forward to, but yet in this context, we often miss some things in applying these verses and these set of verses. Here's three things that we often have to keep in mind with how we understand these verses. Number one, this promise is not just for an individual, but for a people. The plans of the Lord here include all of God's people. It's not a specific plan for an individual. This is a plural you, not a singular you. If we were translating it with a southern accent, it would be y'all or all of y'all. This is a plan for all of God's people, not just for one individual. So that's one thing to keep in mind within the context of this verse. The second thing is that it's not a promise that's going to be fulfilled in the lifetime of the people reading this letter. Did you catch that part? This promise is going to happen. God's going to commit to fulfilling his plans and his purposes, but who is it going to be applied to? To a different generation. This, this fulfillment of God's purpose and plan is going to happen in 70 years, not right now. So the folks that are reading about God's fulfillment and dedication to his plan and purposes to, to bless us and to, to give us good and not to harm us, all those commitments are going to be fulfilled and God's people are going to go back to their land, but not the generation reading the letter. It's to, for a generation yet to come. And so even in light of that, that verse that says that we call on the Lord and seek the Lord isn't this type of prayer that you pray in order to get a transaction as if God is some type of vending machine where you put in this prayer like a coin in a vending machine and then you get out what you want, peace and prosperity and what you want in your timing. No, this is a promise that the future generations will pursue the Lord in a way that has been absent from God's people for a long time and that's one of the reasons why the exile happened. So it's a commitment to the Lord to be with this generation and should motivate present people, the present generation, to seek God with faithfulness even though they won't see the fulfillment of his promises within his lifetime. So here's the deal. If you choose this as your life verse, then this is the application. Better days are ahead, but not for you. <laughs> Only for your kids. <laughs> Because God's plan is not going to be fulfilled in your lifetime. That's the life verse, all right? So if you want to choose it as your life verse, go ahead. But that's how we kind of understand it in its proper context. What a life verse, right? Why, why wouldn't you choose that? Well, we still could choose it. And it's still a hopeful verse because in the gospel, we learn yet again that we still are in exile. In the gospel, especially the, uh, the, the New Testament letters, the writers often call Christians and people in the church that we too are exiles. So why are we called that? Well, because we're not home yet either. We have a heavenly home that's to come, but that's when God fulfills all of his plans in Christ. That is a day that's far off. That's not necessarily right around the corner. It's not necessarily a couple years away. It's probably not going to happen necessarily in our lifetime. We can look in the past on God's faithfulness that the Son of God has come to us exiles even while we were sinners and he dwelt among us and died for our sins on the cross and he raised on the third day and he's ascended into heaven where he continues to rule and reign over his church in human history and that's the reality that we can look to and have assurance in. But yet, we do not yet have our permanent home. The new heavens and the new earth are, is something that is going to come. 
and the, the, all the promises with that, that there will be a day where there's no more pain or crying or mourning or even death anymore, those are plans that God is going to fulfill, but those are days that are yet to come. So the New Testament asks, so how are we to live in this place right now where we're at as exiles? And 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17 gives us some instruction. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent to him by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. And here, if you're listening, it has similar themes as the letter from Jeremiah to the exiles. Here Peter is saying to us as New Testament exiles, live faithfully among those who don't even follow the Lord, but live in such a way that it gives God glory and points back to him and his gospel. Be a peaceful neighbor who serves others. Live so faithfully that, that foolish people are silenced by your deeds. And as servants in Christ, you're free You're free in Christ to use your freedom for good. So respect everyone, love the church, fear and worship God, and honor your public leaders. That's essentially what he says. He just says, hone into the here and now. Don't try to change the past. Don't try to usher in the future in your timing. Right now, live faithfully in light of the gospel to the things and the people in the area right in front of your face. Because I think the reality of what we can understand in taking this verse and understanding it into context is we often live too much in the things we want to change about the past or try to dictate and control the future. And when we do that, we might miss faithful gospel living right now. I want to close with a parable that kind of highlights this. This is a parable that was, uh, it's not from Scripture. Somebody else wrote it. I'm not sure who the original author is. It was shared by one of my friends in ministry, um, and it was one of those things that I read, I'm like, man, that, that almost captures what I think the, the, the main point of this verse is within context, but not quite. So I took a lot of artistic liberty and basically rewrote the whole parable uh, to see if it can land. And it's not a perfect parable, but I think, I think it lands on something that God has for us in understanding this verse within context. So here's the parable. The devil appeared to a group of Bible students in a pub. I don't know. They're they're studying. They're studying Greek in the pub. That's the way I'm telling this parable. (laughs) And the devil says to these uh, group of Bible students, if I give you the power to change something from the past or to determine the future, what would you do? And the first of them, with great idealism, says and replies, I would prevent you from making Adam and Eve fall into sin so that humanity could not turn away from God. That was the first response. And a second, second Bible student, a man full of mercy and, and, and biblical knowledge, says to Satan, I ask that the Lord would usher in the new heavens and the new earth in the next couple years. And the third Bible student, the third of them who was the simplest, and instead of responding to the tempter, he got down on his knees and prayed to God 
this prayer. Lord, free me from the temptation of what could be and the timing of what is to come. And the devil, giving a terrible cry and shuddering with pain, vanishes. And the other two Bible students, surprised, said to him, this third one, Brother, why have you responded like this? And that Bible student replied, First, we must never dialogue with the devil and our temptations. Second, nobody in the world has the power to change the past or to determine the, the timing of the future. And third, Satan's interest was not to prove our virtue, but to trap us in the past or to try to convince us that we can control the future so that we neglect the present, this time that God has given us by his grace to co cooperate with him and join him in his will. And this is the point of the parable. Of all the temptations, the one that often catches God's people the most and prevents them from the blessed life of what God has for us right now is the temptation that we could, what could have been and what will be if only we are in control. The reality of the gospel teaches us this. The past is left to the mercy of God and the future to his divine providence. The present is in our hands to join God in the renewal of all things, to live faithfully in the present because of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God does have plans for us, and that is his plan, to live faithfully in such a way that even if it only blesses the next generation in the fulfillment of all of his promises, that he's a good God with a kind providence that has a mighty gospel that is restoring and renewing all things for his glory.